Welcome back to a new season of Shout to the Top with me, Nick Petford, here on the award-winning NLive Radio. In today's show, we celebrate the start of the new academic year and the physical return of students and staff to campus life. UK universities are, collectively, one of the most successful, most creative and value-adding assets Great Britain has to offer the world. So why does it feel like they're under constant scrutiny, not just from critical politicians and sections of the media, but also from some of those who work and study there? To find out, we've got a great lineup of guests to get us all up to speed on what the coming academic year has to offer. Well, my special guest today is Mary Cunnock-Cook, a highly renowned education expert and something of a media darling when it comes to commentary on policy related to universities and the sector more generally. Now, Mary is a former chief executive of UCAS, that's the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service, and former director of qualifications and skills at the Qualifications and Curriculum Development Agency, if I can get that right. Now, she's currently a non-executive director of the Student Loans Company. Now, Mary left school at 16 and took a job as a secretary at International Biochemicals uh, and left as director of international sales and marketing. We'll hear a bit more about that later. She's also um, a Salome Fellow and was awarded a master's degree from the London Business School in 2001. In 2000, Mary was appointed an OBE for assisting in training with the hospitality industry and was promoted to CBE in the 2020 Birthday Honours for services to further and higher education. And finally, she is chair for Emerge Education, the specialists in education technology or ed tech. Well, what a great list of things and achievements. Well, Mary, welcome to Shout to the Top and the show dedicated uh, to universities. Well, thanks, Nick. It's absolutely great to be here with you. Thanks so much for that flattering introduction as well. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. But Mary, it's a starter term, right? So hundreds of thousands of new fresher students will be starting at universities across the UK, and many of them place through the universities and colleges admission service that you ran until 2017. So for those listening not familiar with universities speak, Mary, what is UCAS and what does it do? Oh, my goodness. Well, UCAS is, is like a, a central place where anyone who wants to go to university can apply. And it's got a, you know, it's got a common admissions platform, the same form for any university or any course. And then UCAS behind the scenes, it does all the matching. It brings in the exam results, makes sure that universities offers get passed back to applicants, that applicants can make the right decisions. To be honest, it's, a, it's an absolutely brilliant service and I loved working there and I loved the fact that we were helping, as you said, hundreds of thousands of students uh, apply for their dream course at university. So it's a bit like a clearinghouse and students apply, you place them through your system to different universities uh, up and down the length of the country. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes it happens automatically because they apply and then the university makes an offer, usually conditional on getting certain exam grades in A-levels or BTECs or something similar. But there are always some people who change their minds or apply a bit later, or sometimes people who perhaps didn't get the grades that they wanted or got much better grades than they were expected. And then they go through um, a series kind of right at the end of the summer called Clearing. Yep. And that is UCAS trying to match applicants who are still looking for a place with universities who still have vacancies. And, and that's a kind of a bit more rushed, but it's really, I think, really efficiently done these days, actually. 
Yeah, well, speaking personally, it works works well for us. Mary, during your time at UCAS, and since then, and I, I think you may have been in charge when the, the new fees regime came in. What changes have you seen in student applicant behaviour? Have they responded differently now in a, fee, a higher fee regime? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean, you know, people talk about uh, students having to pay very high fees and, and the idea that they're kind of consumers of the university experience. I never see it quite like that, but I've always thought that um, students are, in a sense, customers of universities. But what, what really changed over that period was a sort of balance between supply, that supply of university places, and demand from students. So when I first started at UCAS, uh, the government still controlled the, the number of students that each university could, um, could recruit. So actually, there were always fewer places available, especially at some very kind of uh, attractive courses. There were always um, more students applying than there were places available. And then when the number caps came off, something else also happened because actually the population of 18 uh, year olds started to fall over a period of about 10 years from 2009 until I think actually just just last year. So suddenly students were in a really good place because there were fewer of them um, wanting places because the population was falling and there were no uh, caps on numbers and of course universities were very keen to recruit them and that that felt like a sort of golden age for uh, for students who were kind of in a buyer's market if you like um, and now I think things have changed again a bit because the population's back growing and demand goes on growing so the the proportion of all those 18 year olds and, and older students keeps growing. Um, but of course, it's very difficult to tell because these last two years, we've had so many more people getting good grades. So it's a little bit difficult to, to kind of understand the market, you know, and how much it's in favor of students versus how much in favor of, of universities. But hopefully this year, um, it'll start to settle down a bit more and we'll be able to sort of see what patterns are emerging. The pandemic has definitely changed that short-term dynamic. Kind of an ancillary question, really. 50%, that was a mantra, wasn't it, of the Tony Blair students, uh, younger people going to uh, universities. How do you feel about that? Where are we on that target? And should we, should we have a target anyway? I would just never say less education is a good thing. I would always yeah. say more education for more people. <laughs> and I think the economic evidence from around the world is that countries that have higher proportions of their population going to university basically do better on all sorts of uh, all sorts of measures. So I've I've never thought the idea that fewer people should go to university, you know, and people will say, oh, 50% is too high. And I sometimes think that's because people who've already been to university don't kind of <laughs> don't want the competition from, yeah. from more people going. Um, so I'm in favor of more higher education. Um, and uh, I think the target should be just let's keep it growing because it's undoubtedly a good thing. You mentioned the supply and demand economics of all of this. Well, so universities like Northampton, we're on the supply side. We supply courses, students apply for them. What changes have you seen in the provider side in universities over your tenure at UCAS? It's got more competitive, I guess. It's got much more competitive and, and suddenly universities who were pretty much uh, expecting to have, you know, a, a bunch of students handed to them on a plate suddenly had to get 
more active in how they marketed themselves and they had to think about brand, they had to think about positioning, they had to make sure that their courses were attractive. And critically, they also had to make it sure that the students who'd been through their university before uh, were giving good feedback. And sometimes that's measured through the National Student Survey. But of course, in the era of social media, uh, there are so many ways that people can connect and find out um, uh, what, what students think of their uni. And so I, th I think that awareness that they've got to offer a really good student experience, they've got to look after their students is really important. And also they've become much more um, uh, sophisticated in how they market uh, to students that they want to apply because if, if somebody doesn't apply to your university you definitely can't recruit them yeah. um, uh, so you've seen a lot more kind of professional marketing people coming into the sector um, and I think um, actually much more attention rightly given to what happens to students once they uh, once they get to the university and go through their three or four year course. Mary, on a similar theme there's a lot of debate currently about something called post qualification admissions and that is universities taking students onto courses after they've got their results it, it kind of seems an obvious thing but at the moment we do it um, before they've got the results that's the system as it's presently con configured so Mary what are your views on what's called PQA post-qualification admissions and do you think that COVID and I'm thinking of the way the A-level results have been awarded over the last two cycles ha has any bearing on the argument one way or the other? Yeah, such, such an interesting question, because actually, while I was at UCAS, I did a big consultation and I thought it was obvious that it would be better for everybody if students applied after they'd got their results. At the moment, they apply uh, with what are called predicted grades. So their teachers uh, estimate what grades they think they're capable of. Those are submitted with their application and then the university makes them an offer, which is conditional on them getting certain grades. That does seem a sort of basic logic, doesn't there, in saying, well, actually, if you knew what grades you had, you could make a more realistic or a more accurate application. And that's what I thought. And we did this big consultation. We did a big research exercise. And after that, I completely changed my mind. And the thing about it is, is that the more I talk to teachers and to students, and we're talking about school leaders now, of course, lots of people go to university later in life like me, but the, the thing that I think is really important is that for a student quite early on in their year 13 at school or college, to get an offer from a university saying, look, if you get these grades, we'll, uh, we'll admit you to, to study the course that you've chosen, I think is a real motivator. And it kind of allows, it takes a whole big, stress of students lives they can get their heads down and study for their exams knowing that they've got target grades to get I have a feeling that if they didn't know anything about where they were going to end up until after they would got their results that that would be much more stressful they wouldn't have time to kind of get their head in the right space also I really worry about what is a, a very big system you know you've probably got um in England alone, you've probably got 350,000 students going through year 13 and, and getting their exam results each summer. All of those needed to be placed, you know, in a few weeks after the exam results have come out in, in July or August. Um, I'm not sure that that's a good idea. I think schools would be pressed to provide enough support and advice during that period. And an awful lot of kids, I think, 
will have gone off, found a job, you know, and, and maybe just not come back into the system again. So, yeah, I've rather changed my mind, but um, it seems that my view is a bit unfashionable at the moment and the government seems determined to change the system. Just for information, how does it work elsewhere, other than in the US or in Germany? I mean, are we a bit odd in the, in the world in having this our system as it is without post-qualification admissions? Yeah, I think an awful lot of rubbish is talked about what happens in, in other countries. Um, and people say, you know, we're the only country in the world who does it like this. And I think our system is unique. And by the way, it's unique in having a centralised uh, single admissions process through UCAS, which actually I always learned was the kind of envy of other countries who wish they had something similar. But in a, in a, in a lot of places, um, you apply before your results and then you only you only get placed after your results or you apply once you've got your results and maybe with other tests as well but mostly it's a much more complicated system because you have to do multiple applications a slightly different format for lots of different universities for example in in the US who will require different tests different evidence probably pay a fee each time instead of a single fee here so um, it's very difficult to make comparisons and you know, it's not always easy just to say, oh, we should do it like the Australians or we should do it like the Germans or whatever, because your education ecosystem has kind of grown up over decades and maybe even centuries. And if you change one bit of the system, very often you ca cause kind of ripple effects in other parts of the system. So I think it's, it's very, very risky to make a, a big change like that because a lot of unintended consequences could be lurking. <laughs> You're right, the government are thinking about it. We'll just have to have to wait and see, won't we? And uh, yeah. hopefully they'll come up with the, <laughs> with the right decision. Um, but Mary, just to just shift tax slightly, because you've been a governor and a chair at a range of education providers. So to what extent do you see the role as a governor or a trustee changing in response to some of these challenges that you've been telling us about? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, my my impression before I started um, serving on governing bodies was that in some universities, the governing body was a little bit genteel. You know, it was a group of people who were really committed, but uh, it was a fairly it was a fairly sort of passive oversight of what was going on. Of course, in 2017, we had a new higher education act through Parliament in this country. And that's put much more accountability on governing bodies. And, and the regulator holds a governing body to account for a whole load of things like standards and quality and student experience, financial sustainability. So it's become a much more serious uh, business than it might have been in, in the past. And certainly the, the boards that I serve on, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and you know, you really feel like you have to do your homework in order to provide the oversight which is which is required. Um, and I think governing bodies have got a really critical role to play because universities are very complex, often very large organisations. They're very complex. And I think that makes it even more important to have external people who can see the wood for the trees and who can uh, make sure that the universities are focusing on the right things, both in the kind of immediate, for example, during the, the COVID pandemic, but also in the longer term, that they've actually got a strategy which is going to see them through five years, 10 years. You know, most universities would expect to still be around in 100 years or more. 
Well, welcome back to Shout to the Top. I'm Nick Petford and I'm talking to Mary Cook. Uh, Mary, you left school at 16 to take up a secretarial role. So can you tell us something about those early years and you know, why didn't you carry on straight through to university? Uh, well, Nick, I have to tell you that I'm old enough that you know, in those days it wasn't always regarded as being that important to educate <laughs> women. Um, I think only about I think only about 10% of people went to university in those days. And of that 10%, you know, probably only another 10% were, were women. So it was definitely not that usual. It wasn't expected um, for young women to go to university the way it is today. In fact, today, as you probably know, in fact, more women go to university than, than men by, by quite a long shot. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think my parents probably weren't, didn't really mind one way or another. And um, actually, I took uh, I took my A levels at sixteen and didn't do that well in in a couple of them. And so suddenly, instead of going to Cambridge to to do the entrance exam that you had to do in those days, you know, there was just a switch. Instead of going going there to do that, I went there yeah. and did a secretarial course instead. <laughs> But, but you must have, I mean, that, I'm interested in how that, that benefited you longer term as you become, as you rise up through the ranks and to become a chief executive, etc. I mean, do you draw on any of the experiences that you, you picked up and the skills that you picked up during those early years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've basically been, you know, earning my own living since I was about 17. And in, in that respect, you know, I was three or four years ahead of my peers in terms of just work experience. Um, I also think that in those days you could you could get on more without a degree in a, in in a way that perhaps is not so easy today when yeah. you know it's kind of mass higher education today, isn't it? But definitely, you know, I went off, started work, loved working, loved all my jobs. By the way, worked really hard as well. But I did always feel I felt as if I had something missing that I was. I hated not being a graduate, to be honest. But you left as director of international sales and marketing. So you clearly made a big impression at uh, International Biochemicals. So what made you, if I don't know, jump ship and go into the, the, the university ad administration side of things? Uh, I went through a couple of jobs after that first one, you know, which was working for a startup, which is fantastic because basically you're a big cog in a small wheel. And yeah. so you get to, you know, you get to try your hands at anything you're capable of. And, and so that was a great, you know, sometimes I think, I learned everything I ever know about business in, in that first job in my in my early 20s, did a lot of international work and so on. But uh, a bit later on, sort of two or three jobs later, I was running a professional body in the um, in the pub industry in, in licensed retailing. And we also had an awarding body. So we were doing professional qualifications for, for licensees. And that's really when I got the education bug. And and that's when I also realized is, OK, I'd become a reasonably experienced senior manager and leader over the previous years. But, you know, as well as a role in your career, you also have a sector. And I suddenly realized that I wanted to work in education. And, and what did it for me was, you know, in the pub industry, um, certainly in those days, a lot of people would have left school early with no qualifications started working in a bar and then, you know, often went up through the ranks and in those days might have been ending up running, you know, hundreds of hundreds of pubs and really, really responsible and high earning jobs. And seeing those people 
the, uh, the meaning for them of getting the first qualification, the first time anyone had validated their professional standards and their professional knowledge and skills and seeing what that meant to them. You know, that was the game changer for me. Part of your portfolio is this thing called a Sloan Fellow. It's run by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and there's some really famous alumni. So just going to list a few of them. So Gang Xiaohuang, uh, that's Singapore's first female general. Carly Fiorina, who was the chief executive officer of Hewlett Placard and the first woman to lead a Fortune top 20 company. Uh, and Philip Condit, who was the former chairman and CEO of Boeing. So uh, esteemed company indeed. So going to tell us something about what the Sloan Fellowship is and how did you get involved with that? Yeah, well, thanks for that. Well, I mentioned that, you know, that I got the education bug and and I decided that's where I wanted to take my career. And I did realise at that stage that probably not having a degree was going to hold me back from getting a getting a serious leadership job in the education sector. So I wanted to get a degree. I had always thought about the idea of doing an MBA, a bit, you know, a master's in business earlier in my career and for various reasons and hadn't done that. And, and actually, the Sloan Fellowship at London Business School was one of, um, of only a few that were available that you could do in a year. You know, I wanted to do this quickly. It was expensive for me to yeah. step off my career for a whole year and stop earning and so on. Yeah. And, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't realise until I got onto it just how prestigious it was. And, and I, I just absolutely loved it. You know, I was 41 mm-hmm. when, when I graduated, so I was a bit... Uh, peaked a bit late in that respect um but I absolutely loved that year and you know I really I really felt great I'm I'm at university I'm a student and it was it was a wonderful experience and of course ended up with a a degree on my CV which which did then luckily kind of put me on the road to senior roles in in the education sector. Well Mary Donald Rumsfeld famously spoke of known knowns and known unknowns I mean the pandemic certainly falls into the latter category as something that's known to occur we just don't know when it's going to hit so given this can you gaze into your crystal ball and tell us what else might be lurking out there waiting to hit UK higher education unexpectedly and in particular I'd be interested in in your views on the opportunities and the risks for UK universities in the growing edtech let's see educational technology arena yeah no that's a really good question and I mean I really hope Nick as I'm sure you do that there's there's nothing lurking around the corner that's going to be a a catastrophic hit in the way that the Covid pandemic has been you know and by by the way if any universities had um, a global pandemic on their risk register I'm quite sure that the (laughs) mitigations they put in place wouldn't you know wouldn't have come close you know none of us none of us could have um, envisaged how this would all play out so 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 for me the kind of the known knowns and the known unknowns are are more likely to be kind of slow burn changes in the in the sort of ecosystem of education We're, we're obviously waiting this autumn for the comprehensive spending review and you know, anticipating that the government is going to change the way that higher education is funded, which might mean less money per student, or it might mean that student number caps come back on again. You know, so those kind of things, we we know they're in the offing. I do think the long wait for, you know, for, for these policy changes has kind of put a bit of a planning blight on, on the sector. It's almost like we've been waiting for this for two and a half years now yeah. since um, the Augur report was um, uh, was published. 
but for me it's a bit more about whether whether people are going to slightly change their view you know this model of people leaving school and going pretty much straight to university usually on a residential basis for three or four years you know that's becoming expensive for the students as 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 well as um for the government and I wonder whether combination of some of the policy changes, you know, the lifelong learning entitlement and this big switch to, you know, really accessible, really engaging online learning yeah. is going to perhaps over a time, as I said, a sort of slow burn is going to change, uh, change that model. And I certainly think, you know, lots of people do go to university like me a bit later in life. Yeah. And when they do, they do it with a very strong purpose and a very strong rationale about what course they want to do and why they want to do it which is slightly different for your 18 year olds thinking oh that looks interesting and that fits my um you know the subjects I was good at at school I'll do that without really understanding how it's going to impact on their career so I think maybe that switch to a more modular approach is something to keep an eye on and, and possibly for universities to deliberately drive so yeah. that they get really good at looking after students who are taking a slightly more meandering path through their education over a number of years rather than doing it all at once straight after school. Well, it takes me back to what you're saying earlier about the Sloan Fellow. I mean, you, you, you said this, the kind of key thing there, you didn't have the time to give up work and attend a residential course at university. So perhaps, you know, you're, you're ahead of the curve, Mary, in, in the, <laughs> the way that you consume that form of education, that, that universities need to be doing more to, to reach out to people in work and deliver, if you like, fit for purpose in work learning, as opposed to just simply catering by and large for the 18-year-old student. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I do have a slight worry, Nick, you know, this lifelong learning entitlement, which, as I understand it, would mean that um, mature students could um, could take up, you know, some kind of part time study on um, and get a, a student loan to pay their tuition costs. And, you know, I think asking people who are perhaps, let's say, in their 30s, maybe they're settling down, having a family, got a mortgage, etc. I think for them taking on a student loan, yeah. which is going to take a you know a, a kind of a tax premium slice off their monthly income i'm not absolutely convinced that that's the right way to fund it and the right way to create demand um, but nevertheless this whole upskilling and reskilling agenda i think is is just uh, getting more and more important not least because technology is changing the workplace and how we all work and the kind of jobs that um, and skills that are needed in in the economy it's been fascinating chatting, but uh, the hardest thing you're going to have to answer to me is your song of choice, a special guest. So, Mary, what is your song of choice and why did you choose it? Oh, it, this was a really <laughs> difficult one. And um, my choice is a very short track by Janis Joplin called Mercedes Benz from mm -hmm. the album Pearl, which was it was released, I think, only two or three months after she um, sadly, tragically died of a um, an accidental overdose. Um, so this is early 70s, 1971, I think. And this is, uh, as I understand it, this track was was pretty much improv. You know, she was just kind of doodling away uh, one day and and uh, singing it. And it it seems to me to anticipate the kind of consumer uh, revolution and the consumerist um, society and aspirations of you know that followed in the. Um, in the 80s and then um, just right at the end you know she ends with that's it and the, the most <laughs> amazing cackle at the end which is 
worth listening to the short track just to hear that. So that's my choice. Oh, fantastic. Well, let's hear it. And Mary, many, many thanks. Thanks a million, Nick. I've enjoyed talking to you. Well, Steve West, my next guest, is a trained podiatrist and spent time working in the NHS and in the private and commercial sectors before moving to academia in 1984 as a lecturer, then senior lecturer at the Chelsea School of Tropedy uh, and Podiatric Medicine, uh, the London Foot Hospital and Westminster University. He developed his research interests at King's College London in the Department of Bioengineering. In 1990, he joined Huddersfield University as Associate Dean and Head of the Department of Podiatry and left in 1995 to join UWE, University of West of England, Bristol, as Dean of the Faculty of Health and Social Care. There he stayed and was appointed Vice-Chancellor at UWE in 2008. Now, Steve is a Fellow of the Society of Tropidists, a Fellow of the College of Podiatric Medicine and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine. And in 2021, he was elected President of Universities UK. That's a collective voice of universities across England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Well, Steve, welcome. Hi, Nick. Great to be here. Yes, all right. It's a great set of biographies you've got there behind you. So, look, you became a Vice-Chancellor uh, not long uh, before I did. So, uh, put you on the spot, Steve. What do you see as the biggest challenge that you've faced during this period? So I joined the university uh, as the vice-chancellor, having uh, been the deputy uh, with a previous vice-chancellor who left quite quickly. So I guess my first challenge was to stabilise the university and sort of uh, get it back into some shape um, that would allow us to build our reputation um, and, uh, and change, I guess, the culture within the university. So my biggest challenge really was... Um, first of all, learning about the university through a different set of eyes. Vice chancellors are very different from any other role that I'd done. So relearning about the university, uh, working with staff and then building a new strategy for the university that was as much about cultural behavioural change as it was about investment in, uh, of course, infrastructure and buildings, but, but people mainly. So our, I, I guess the biggest challenge was joining all of that up in a way that excited and inspired people to want to come on the journey with us um, and, and be prepared to acknowledge that if we were going to be really innovative, we would make some mistakes on the way. It yeah. wasn't all going to be perfect. And that's probably been really my experience over the entire period um, that we'll try stuff, we'll get some things right, uh, but broadly, we're all going in the right direction. And you've been a long time advocate, rightly, for mental health and well-being in universities. And I think you were flying the flag, Steve, before it was on so high on the agenda for many of us. Now, that was vital before COVID. But then do you think the pandemic has added a new sense of urgency to student and staff mental well-being? And if that's so, what more needs to be done? So I think absolutely right. COVID has, I think, just increased uh, everybody's awareness of their own mental health and well-being, but also the the last 18 months or so has really given us, I think, an understanding of how others' mental health and well-being has been over this period. So whether it's staff, friends, family, we've all spotted stuff that actually has been quite difficult for some personally, uh, also coping with death and loss, as well as coping with the lockdowns and all of the pressures that come as a result of, of being in an alien world, I guess, for a period. Universities are about people in the end, and they're about how do we, you, both in students and in staff, 
support talent to be the best that it can possibly be. And of course, in order to do that, our mental health and well-being has to be at its best. And we've all got mental health. We've all got days and periods where we are uh, feeling better and our mental health is better than others. And for some people, we've got poor mental health over periods or enduring mental illness, which is clearly something that requires longer term support. So what I think COVID has done has just shone a light and amplified for many what was already there. And the universities have had to step up really very, very quickly to be able to support both staff and students over this period. The NHS has had to do similar. And I have to say the NHS across the country has really struggled and will continue to struggle. And that means that they will focus on the really significant enduring mental illness and poor mental health and well-being is something that they are unlikely to be able to support, certainly in the short, medium term. And that's where universities uh, have to step in and support their staff and students. We've got some tools that the sector has helped create, the Step Change Framework and Student Mental Health Charter. And those two things, along with guidelines around suicide prevention, are all helping us create within our own institutions an infrastructure and a support framework that can help us all. But there is something that's that's probably most important, and that is that all of us, every single person, in our universities, uh, whether they're staff or students, are human and kind. Yeah. And that is about also then asking people how they are and not being afraid to pick people up if they say, well, actually, do you know what? I'm not feeling great. And then taking time out to be able to support them. And it's not just about signposting people into particular services, well-being, health services. It's about being human and part of a community and supporting each other. Uh, because we're going to need everybody's eyes and ears open, certainly over the next period, to make sure that we don't miss anything. So it's not just a tick box exercise, Steve. What you're saying is it's a, it's more than just you know filling out a spreadsheet and congratulating yourself that you've had so many people through the door in terms of mental health issues. Yeah. It's about on constantly being part of a an ongoing process of reaching out and relating to people yeah it's very much that nick i um i mean i shared a story with staff um very early on in the pandemic which uh, i wasn't expecting to share with them but i was doing a whole series of q and a's uh, every week it started and then it went every two weeks and i shared a story where i was out cutting the grass and my son 15 year old son came up to me and he said why are you crying dad and I said to him, do you know what, Alex, I, this is just really difficult. I want to make it better for everyone. I want to fix it. And I can't. Um, I can't fix it for everyone so that the university can come back. And I shared that story with staff. And I can't tell you how many staff came up to me and students came up to me and just said, thank you. Thank you for being human. And thank you for sharing something that was so personal and, and real. And I then said, that's what we've all got to do. We've all got to lower our barriers a bit and let people in and let them see we're all human and we're all the same. And then when we do that, people will be more likely to have real conversations with each other and we can then support each other. And that for me was a big turning point. And we've got to get into that space uh, and then really work hard with each other 
to go into some territories uh, this time of the year, as we all know, students coming back. And we know that that's a really difficult time. That transition is really hard. And we also know that there are pressures on students. So we're doing big campaigns around uh, drug and alcohol and harm reduction and making sure people remain safe, but also are making the right choices with information. And that is also going to help in the longer term, their mental health and well-being. So it's a multi-pronged approach and being very open about how we work together to support each other. So, Steve, you spoke about choices a second ago. Now, you were elected uh, as president of Universities UK earlier this year. So what do you think are the, the, well, maybe the three biggest challenges facing your UK presidency over the coming few years? Okay, I think the first one is uh, shifting the dials on the narrative and how universities are viewed in the press um, and by government and therefore often by the public. We, you know, universities are fantastic places and somehow at the moment, certainly over the last four or five years, we've been seen as uh, not, not delivering or, or not doing what people are expecting us to do. And I think that's very unfair. Um, we've got a lot, of course, to do in terms of building those relationships. But that's number one, rebuild um, the relationships and demonstrate that we are part of solving the problems that we currently have, but also very much about building a new future for um, UK. So that's the first thing. Second thing is clearly um, being able to do that in a way that is supported by sustainable funding um, and that funding regime being able to allow us to innovate and be creative and adapt and change over time. Then the third thing I have to say is about making sure that the sector as a whole, that whole ecosystem, further education and uh, higher education, working together collaboratively. And I think that for me, collaboration and partnership working with a range of bodies is going to be key to our future. Um, And holding that line is going to be essential if we are going to be able to influence Uh, funders and influence government effectively Um, and I also want us to be seen as a place where people want to engage and want to come to so that getting those messages right is going to be a really important part of I think the next two years. My final question and there's been a quite a bit of churn at the top in terms of leadership VCs coming and going over the last 12 months. So Steve, what advice would you give to a new vice chancellor coming in? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) First of all, don't come in unless you really, really want to give your whole life and being to wanting to lead a university. It is all consuming, but huge fun. Um, So I guess my messages would be uh, listen hard and engage and find out about the institution that you are leading. Really understand it. Be very visible, be available, and be authentic and empathetic. Um, And what the staff are looking for is honesty and reliability. Um, And I think that as part of that, valuing staff and students and empowering them but also holding them to account um you know education is 
collaborative. Education is about working with each other, staff and students, and co-creating all of those things. So that's one piece of advice. The second piece of advice, I think, is understand your boards, understand the dynamics of the board and your senior team, and work to create a compelling vision and set of strategies that hold that senior leadership environment together and in particular boards together and then check regularly uh, as you're progressing that or as you're developing it and then progressing it that people are with you that people are coming on the journey and supporting and if things aren't quite working um, make sure you've got mechanisms to get feedback but if they're not quite working don't be afraid to change direction and you know just adjust uh, that direction slightly and if you've built trust and you've built those relationships which I think are the bedrock uh, of running a university then people will come with you so there's quite a lot in there but it is about relationships it is about people that is the job um, and it's about being clear uh, uh, and 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 able to tell the story in a way that people get excited about our job is to inspire excite to infuse, to challenge. Um, but it's about, in the end, bringing people together who want to do that for themselves. Steve West, many thanks. Well, welcome back to Shout to the Top. Uh, Alistair Jarvis is Chief Executive of Universities UK. That's the collective voice of 140 universities across the United Kingdom. Alistair was previously Deputy Chief Executive of Universities UK after he joined in 2013 as Director of Communications and External Relations. Before that, he was Director of Comms and Marketing at the University of Birmingham. His undergraduate degree from the University of Kent is in politics and government, and he holds postgraduate qualifications from the University of Leicester and the Institute of Education. Alistair is well known within the higher education sector as a speaker and commentator on HE issues. Well, Alistair, welcome to Shout to the Top. Nick, hi, it's great to be with you. Fantastic. Look, Universities UK has a unique position being able to look out across the higher education sector, but, you know, representing some 140 institutions with different missions and outlooks uh, must be very challenging. So how do you find a single voice for the sector when engaging on issues of interest? Uh, so t- two things, I think, Nick. F- firstly, is there's um, there's so many issues that unite the sector. Um, it was so so many common common things. You know, we 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 all want to deliver fantastic education. We all want to do research that change lives, helps communities. Um, there's so much that unites us. So that therefore, there's actually loads of shared values, shared issues. Um, you know, we want to see a, a, a UK that's welcoming to international students and international staff. We want universities to have good funding so we can deliver really good impact we want our universities to be fair in the way that they um, allow people from all different backgrounds to study so there's there's tons of stuff that unites us um but of course there's also things where there's differences of views across the sector and the way we we work through that is to try and listen to all views to try and understand the the diversity the nuances and where we can use those diversities as uh, you know as a real strength of the sector um so on most issues we can find a pretty strong uh, common voice look you work closely with government um it's a key part of the the, the mission of, of university uk so how do you overcome the challenges that arise from cabinet reshuffles and the new priorities of 
I don't know, incoming ministers or secretaries of state. I mean, such as the one that took place recently. And I'm talking here, of course, about Gavin Williamson being replaced by Nadim Zahawi. So, it, I mean, it's part of politics that, that ministers come and go. Um, uh, I actually did a, did a list last week, Nick, when the, they had the latest reshuffle. So since I've been at Universities UK, uh, I've worked, uh, I've seen eight different changes of universities minister. And if you add in uh, ministers with responsibility for universities, including the, the Secretary of State, I think we're up to 15 now in the um, eight and a half years I've been at Universities UK. So, so ministerial change is just part of the job. It's just part of what we do. And um, of course, the, the, there are, yeah, there are pros and cons to ministerial change. I mean, you, you, in my role, I build up relationships with government ministers. It's important that you get into a, uh, a common understanding of, of, of what government wants, what universities can deliver. So you have to build up that understanding. And, and of course, every time you get a change, you've got to build that relationship again. So, um, you know, you've got to go back to basics. You've got to ensure that they are briefed on the issues that matter to universities. But you've also got to understand their priorities. And, and although the government will broadly have a set of common aims and objectives. Ministers will look at things in different ways. So you've got to be understanding of, of, of what a particular minister is looking for, what their style is, what, what, what will influence them. So, you know, some are influenced more by uh, emotive arguments, examples, um, you know, real life stories, whereas others are very driven by data and evidence. And so you need to you need to look at the different styles, different approaches and, 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 and build a case. So on that, I mean, Universities UK is closely involved in preparations for COP26. That's the International Conference on Climate Change held in uh, Glasgow later this year. So how important, Alistair, is it for UK universities to be engaging in this agenda? And I have to say, in addition, of course, to the well, to the blue skies research work, without which nobody would ever have heard of climate change or its potential impact in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no bigger challenge for our generation, for, for the world at the moment, than, than tackling climate change. It's absolutely critically important that universities engage in this agenda. Actually, I'd go further than that. Universities should be leading this agenda and, and right at the very centre. You know, the climate emergency affects all of us. And so we've got to work together to drive change, to achieve change. And universities can, you know, can be central to driving that change. And I think we've heard fantastic stories of universities, uh, research, as you said, making a difference. Universities themselves setting ambitious uh, net zero targets. I think embedding climate justice into the curriculum is also really important. So it's actually ensuring that the, the next generation really understand what can make a, a, a difference. There's a huge amount of work going on with universities advising national, international decision makers, but also there's a really important local leadership role here and, and building understanding and supporting local leaders to make a difference in, in your local area. Um, so I think there's lots of great stuff universities are doing, but, but we need more to be done. Um, I mean, I would like to see all universities putting the climate emergency, putting net zero as part of their, their strategic priorities um, I think they need to work with students, they need to work with staff, they need to work with local communities and government to address these challenges together. There's also a, a comprehensive spending review coming up. Uh, what are your thoughts, Alistair, on how the sector will fare? They've got three objectives here, here Nick, which um, uh, when you take them together, you can see there are, are risks to universities here. Um, firstly, they want to save some money. The view is that the student loan book, the, the Treasury 
um, uh, cost of the student finance system is is rising and in the government size is is getting too high and is getting out of control so they want to control the student loan book which means they need to find a way to to, to give out less money effectively um, or at least stop the, the growth in it um, second priority is that they uh, want to in, in their words tackle what they call low quality courses low quality provision I think we could have a, a debate about whether their definition of quality is right and whether they really value the right things but but the, the political fact is that they believe there is low quality provision and they want to take steps to uh, tackle that um and then thirdly um this government is massively focused on the economy post-pandemic uh, economic recovery on leveling up and they want to ensure that um is delivering the skills that the economy needs and particularly skills that local businesses local people need to to be successful in the in the workforce um, what we don't know is exactly what policy changes are going to make. Um, I think it's been widely covered that they're looking at the changes to student repayment terms. So um, will they uh, potentially try and get more back from graduates than they're currently paying? There's different ways you can do that. You can extend the period that graduates pay um, for longer, um, for longer into the into later life, because uh, there is a cutoff point now, or you can ask them to pay back on, on lower salaries than they're currently paying back now. But I think um, if you're really going to um, cut the public subsidy to higher education, you're going to reduce cost of loan book, uh, the, probably the primary way the government would look through that is to um, change the student repayment terms so, so graduates um, are paying back more of their loans. Because at the moment, they're only paying back, on average, about half of the, the amount they, they, they borrow. Yep. Um, second um, uh, area we're watching out for is um, what's going to happen to the, the fees levels. Yep. So we've had um, uh, fees at 90.50 for a while. They were 9,000 and 90.50, but it's been pretty much a fees freeze for many years. There's lots of people pushing to say it should be inflation linked, but there's other people saying that, in fact, you can cut the fees and that's how you save money. Um, I'd massively caution against that. I think if we see a fees cut, a fees cut will damage the quality of what universities can offer. So I think if you're a government saying um, we care about quality, we want to support high quality, the worst possible way to support high quality is to cut fees because universities will not have the money to deliver the high quality education and student experience that students want. Um, I'm hopeful we'll end up in a position where, where the government decides not to cut fees because the, there'd be a real damage if they, they did that. And then the, the other area which people are looking out for is um, our government in some way going to constrict the numbers of people that can go to university. At the moment, we, we don't have a cap. So if a student um, uh, wants to go to university, uh, they, can, they can get a loan. And, um, but, but, but what I worry about there is that if you cap the numbers, um, it is potentially those from the more disadvantaged backgrounds that will be blocked from, from going to university. I think what history tells us is that when the cap was lifted because there used to be a cap on numbers it had a really positive impact on more people from poorer backgrounds more disadvantaged backgrounds coming to university i worry that if you put a cap back on you're going to block access to people that would have hugely benefited from university um uh, and will struggle to get get into those places alistair and finally any advice for universities on the uss pensions dispute it's a really tough problem Nick, and it's been one that's going on for for many years now so we're, the, the, there is a pension scheme um which about half universities are are um are sort of major employers within the scheme and this scheme has uh, a deficit um is underfunded and that deficit's been uh, pretty persistent for for many years 
Also, the cost of future service, so the costs for the future of the scheme are, are rising as well. So you've got this kind of double problem that the scheme um, needs to be reformed, it needs to change. There's lots of different views on how much it needs to change, whether the problem is as great as people say it is, but ultimately the pensions regulator who illegally um, regulate the scheme and the, the board of the, the trustee board of the scheme have to make a decision on, is there enough money coming into the scheme uh, to pay the benefits um, uh, that are promised? And uh, they've made very clear um, that the scheme cannot continue without change. Um, and uh, that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to reform the benefits. It will mean, and this is you know, really not great for people who are uh, in the scheme, it will mean um, a reduction in benefits of between 7% and 15% in future benefits uh, for most um, uh, scheme members, but it will allow them then to avoid those much, much higher uh, contributions that they would have to pay, those unaffordably high contributions. So frankly, it's one of those things where there is no good answer. Uh, whichever way you turn, there are, are problems, but there is no choice but to reform the scheme in some way. And we think of a, a range of not particularly palatable options that the least worst is some, some benefit reform. And even with that benefit reform, it's still going to be a, a really good pension scheme and better than an awful lot of others out there. Alistair, many, many thanks. Well, welcome back to Shout to the Top. My next guest is Beth Garrett. Beth is Vice President for Education at the University of Northampton for the academic year 2021 and 2022. Beth graduated from the University of Northampton studying primary education and is finishing her master's in education. Now, Beth uh, started out at the University of Birmingham reading mathematics, but moved to Northampton in 2017. And her longer term plans are to work in higher education as a teacher trainer. My first question is, what made you want to stand as a student rep at the university? Well, first of all, Nick, thank you very much for uh, having me on your show. In terms of running for a student rep, I think a lot of the influence for me came from knowing students in like the years above me who were doing similar things and from working alongside them, getting to know them better and knowing what they do, that kind of led me into the roles that I've been doing. And I remember when I stood as a, a faculty representative, one of my friends had already done it and, I, and I'd asked her, I, I said, um, what's involved in it? What, what's it like? Um, what did you think of doing the role? And it was for that reason that I got into it and then one thing led to another and I've ended up in the position that I'm in in now so it's it wasn't something you always wanted to do in life generally but you were kind of inspired you watched what other people did um, a, a couple of a year or so ahead of you and thought you could add value as you are doing now Beth by the way and representing the students yeah definitely I think well I suppose it might be a reflection of my sort of mathematical background but I've, I've very much always been a, a problem solver and I think I'm quite good at identifying areas where things can improve and I've always wanted to be in a position where I can actually do something about it and I think the representation roles that I've been in in my current role um, sort of give me the platform and allow me to do that so I think it's a combination of always wanting to have done that sort of thing even when I was at school myself but I lacked the confidence to do it then but then knowing people at the university um, who've done the roles before me and, and finding out more from them um, it kind of just pieced everything together and I, I grew that confidence to step into these roles. 
That's great. I mean, you mentioned problem solving. I mean, these all students, the school game, well, all of us have been through a bit of a torrid time in the last 18 months with COVID. So what do you think now things appear to be settling down a bit, students at the University of Northampton want over the next 12 months? I will say um, it's been absolutely delightful to have students um, come back onto campus um, recently and and to have everybody coming back to something that I suppose resembles a bit more of the normality that we're, we're used to pre-pandemic. Um, um, and I think that will very much be the focus for staff and students over the next 12 months is um, getting back to what we're used to in terms of the sense of community that we have at the university, um, helping students to feel like they, they belong and they're part of the community and, and they've got that. They can identify with other groups of students and do things that um, appeal to their interests. And I think that that's going to be really key over the next 12 months. And then I think on the flip side of that as well, we've got the... Um, the fact that the students, particularly those that are coming into the university now, if they've come straight from school, they've experienced effectively two academic years of major disruption to their education. And so I think a bit of stability is going to be key just to sort of reconcile that and and get them back to a place where they can focus on their education and what they want to do without having all of these external factors disrupting that. Thanks, Beth. That's interesting. I mean, my youngest daughter is studying at, at university and you know, I've, I've watched with a bit of dismay, actually, the way that her education has been disrupted in, in the last 12 or so months. I mean, more generally, how do you think universities have managed the pandemic? Uh, you know, what has worked and what could have been done better? I think there is a large variation in how well universities have dealt with it I think some institutions have handled it better than others and I think that comes in part from their general preparedness for events like this obviously they don't happen very regularly but um, for example like at the University of Northampton we had active blended learning was an approach that we'd been using pre-pandemic so we'd already got the resources and the technology to support online and remote learning even prior to the pandemic which I think put us in a good position um, when everything then moved online and I think from having spoken to people in similar roles to mine at other institutions that is not the case at every institution I think other universities struggled because they they haven't had those facilities and that, those resources beforehand I think there's a number of issues that are almost out of universities controls I think when it comes to things like accommodation and um, tuition fees is always the big one there's only so much that I think universities can do particularly those that are smaller or in a less stable financial position um, there's only so much that they can do themselves I think that in terms of their response to the pandemic and, and what students need it needs more backing from the government for example because universities just don't have the resources and the financial backing to give the students exactly what they want and what they I think really deserve in some cases and that's no fault of the universities but this is what happens isn't it when you get a pandemic and nothing's planned and universities just have to do what they can. So Beth, given your interest in math and your passion for mathematics do you think that future generations of teachers of students will be drawing on the experiences from of the pandemic things like the R number and exponential growth etc to actually teach math in a far more applied and relevant way? 
I would hope so yeah I, I mean even looking back into like secondary mathematics at the moment for example part of the curriculum is to look at exponential graphs looking at exponential equations formula things like that and so it does link directly into the curriculum and they can use real life situations and real life examples which I think then makes the maths even more relevant because it's not this abstract thing then but students and children will just think well why is this relevant to me uh, you know I, I don't need it in my life where actually you can go it's really important and this is exactly why why look at this real life context brilliant look beth that's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much indeed and uh, good luck with with your vice president role for education over the next 12 months here at the university brilliant thank you very much nick well, welcome back to a shout to the top uh, my next guest is raj jethra raj is the ceo at the universities and colleges employers association that's UCA, supporting its 174 member he institutions uh, representing their interests as employers now raj previously worked as the Director of Policy at the British Medical Association, the BMA, leading a team supporting the BMA's policy development, representative activities and national negotiations, and managing relations with key stakeholders, including the NHS, trade unions and the Royal Colleges. Prior to that, he's worked for the Police Federation of England and Wales and the Trade Union Congress, the TUC. He holds a postgraduate degree in industrial relations and personnel management from the London School of Economics and political science. Raj, many thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure. Now, Raj, you've been uh, the chief executive at UCA, that's the University's Colleges Employers Association, for 18 months now. So is it safe to say uh, it's been an interesting and challenging start? I think that's a good, those are good euphemisms. I mean, I joined, as you said, I joined uh, the, uh, joined UCA from the British Medical Association. So there are lots of jokes about me walking the floor. I'd previously worked for trade unions and now I was representing all of the universities as employers. And that was at the height of a very high profile dispute between um, employers and unions, which had seen about 20 days lost to strike action. So I kind of thought that was the biggest challenge that we'd be facing at UCA. But of course, within a month, that all paled into insignificance. So I, I joined, I think, in February 2020, and a month later, most of us were working under lockdown. And um, it has been interesting, but it's been it's been fascinating. And I think that um, what's happened in that period is uh, you see has reproved its value to members. We've managed to support universities with the workforce challenges they face, giving them advice they need, working with unions and with government to make sure that there's things in place that universities need. So universities could do what they needed to do, which was to support students. And um, you know, I, uh, I, refl I reflect on this. I've, I've been, although it's been a retrying time for so many people, I've been lucky to join at that moment because you see it's played a very important role in the sector, but we've been really well supported by, um, by our members, by the UCA board, which you were on when I joined, Nick. But also, I've got a really good team at UCA, and actually, they've really proved how, how passionate they are about supporting the university sector and supporting our members. And I think members really appreciate the work we've been doing. You joined, as you say, during a, a global pandemic. Um, the pandemic continues to have a massive impact on higher education uh, with our workforce adapting to address new demands. So Raj, what have been the most significant COVID-19 related work challenges the sector has faced? And has UCA worked with trade unions during this time? It certainly has. And as I said, we, now, this, the pandemic struck just as we were still in the midst of a very, um, very fraught industrial dispute with unions. That, not, notwithstanding that, we are, what I think has been really um, impressive, both for employers and unions, is how we managed to get beyond those legitimate differences around the dispute and to actually engage in really constructive partnership working to support the sector. So we came up with a series of joint principles about safe return, safe 
safe return to campus and safe working on campus to support institutions to have conversations with their staff and with local unions. We came up with joint statements to encourage staff to take up vaccinations and to take up uh, testing opportunities, which are really important for all sort of employers and, uh, and members of staff at the moment, to give them the reassurance they need to try to re-engage with the world of work after a very difficult you know, period of time. And I'd say actually that's a testament to the fact that despite the differences between employers and unions, when it really matters, we can work together in a very constructive way to really deal with the major issues that are facing us. The sector, however, um, is not all plain sailing. Now faces a potential autumn, a possible strike action with UCU's plans to open strike ballots at UK universities from the 18th of October over a range of issues, including USS pensions. We heard previously from Alistair Jarvis at UK about the pension situation. So what was UCU's pay offer for 2021-2022? And what are your main messages to those employees being balloted for industrial action? And at this point, I should say, I should declare that we did invite Joe Grady, who's the UCU boss, to take part, but we didn't hear back from her. It's important to recognise that we've been through a really testing period for the higher education sector. It's a major employer, almost half a million jobs across the across the sector. Uh, institutions, now there are a range of places. Um, some have managed to weather the storm relatively safely. Others, though, are under real pressure. And what the, the pandemic has done is just exacerbate the pressures that institutions were already facing. So within that context... We came up with what we thought was a fairly reasonable offer. We thought it was a fair but unsustainable thing for the sector. And it provides for a 1.5% increase for all members of staff, but with um, higher amounts, up to a maximum of 3.6% for some members of staff. And we think that's a really reasonable offer in the current climate. It compares favourably with not just the public sector in general, which is subject to a pay freeze, but also to even the NHS, which might be seeing a 3% pay increase. So in that context, we think it's a reasonable offer. I mean, at the outset of the pandemic, about just over a year ago, I remember UCU uh, made projections that there could be as many as 30,000 job losses in the higher education sector. I'd be surprised if we'd seen even a fifth of that amount. And I'd say that's because institutions have worked really hard to try to minimise the impact on jobs of the pandemic. And they've managed their finances as best they can. And I would argue that the pay restraint we've been forced to accept in the sector um, has been a contribution to how institutions have been able to manage their finances. So I'd say, again, look at the pay award in that context, that what employers and institutions have tried to do balanced pay against jobs in the sector and I think they've done it pretty well compared to what's going on in the wider economy but it wasn't just about pay you know the unions had about I think 13 or 14 points on their claim we've offered to work with unions to look at the issues around the gender and ethnicity pay gaps we've offered to work with unions to promote opportunities for career development we've offered to work with unions on issues to do with graduate teaching assistants and similar roles we've offered to work with unions to look at some of the issues around the compression of the pay spine at the lower end. So we think altogether it's a pretty comprehensive offer uh, within the remit we've got for our employees. And we really would urge staff to think very carefully about this because it's been a disruptive year in, uh, for students. Institutions have worked really hard to keep on delivering their learning offer and their support for students. And it would just be so disappointing if that point when we already see more students back on campus or, uh, and um, more staff into campus that actually what we see instead is disruption across the sector through unnecessary industrial action. Yeah, look, I was a UC board member, Raj, as you know, for nearly a decade, and I can only recall a pay settlement handshake with trade unions on one occasion 
during the Jinch's uh, collective pay negotiations, and there were always threats of industrial action, etc., or industrial action itself, which did take place nearly every year. But while the universities will never be able to match the trade unions' claims, I guess, do you think it's time to reconsider the national bargaining structure itself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a legitimate point there. Now, I'll start off by just putting the, laying my cards on the table. I am passionately committed to the cause of trade unions, given my background, but also to the importance of collective bargaining, where, you know, where staff want their pay to be you know, determined in that way. But the point you make is an important one. In the last decade, there's only been one pay offer that's been awarded on time by August because both the unions and employees have reached an agreement. In almost every other year, there's been a dispute. And in several years, there's been industrial action. Now, that might not simply be the result of how we negotiate over pay. But you might also just want to reflect on the fact that it's called new ginches. That's what the the, um, the collective bargaining agreement is called. It's been in existence in one shape or other for about 20 years, in this current iteration for about 10 years. And in that, those last 10 years, a lot has changed. Uh, the proportion of funding that comes from tuition fees is much greater now for institutions than it was a decade ago. There's been greater degrees of divergence across the UK in terms of devolution. We've seen the impact of the, of the, UK, the UK designed to lead the European Union. Those may or may not have an impact on the higher education sector, but the context has certainly changed. And within that, then you add to the fact that actually there's clear frustration about the way in which we don't seem to be able to reach an act that's jointly owned at the end of every annual pay negotiation. So I think it's definitely worth revisiting. I suspect we'll, I mean, we're going to, we've, we've launched a national conversation on the future of pay bargaining as part of our strategic plan, which we launched earlier this year, uh, which is designed to take us hopefully over the next two and a half years, to a more stable environment to work within. But one of the things we're trying to pursue in that is this conversation with our members about the future of pay bargaining. We want to get ideas from them about how they think it works at the moment, how it might possibly be reformed. And if we reach a position where there's a consensus for some degree of change, we'll then negotiate with the unions because it is a joint agreement between ourselves and the unions. And so that's a very long-term view about what we need to do. But I certainly think the premise of your question is correct, that now's about the right time just to reflect on how we negotiate pain in the sector and see if there's any appetite or possibility of, of improving it. Right. Raj, very clear. Many thanks for joining me. Happy to. Thank you very much. Well, my next guest is Nick Hillman, uh, the Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI, a position he has held since 2014. And after studying at the University of Manchester, Nick taught English at the University of Bucharest in Romania before gaining a PGCE and teaching history in London. And Nick worked for Conservative MP David Willits, first as a senior research officer and then uh, as his chief of staff and finally in the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills as a special advisor when Mr Willits was science minister. And since 2016, he's been on the board of governors at Manchester and is also a member of the Higher Education Policy Development Group at the British Academy. Uh, he has also previously been a research fellow with the Policy Exchange. Well, hello, Nick, and welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. It's fantastic to be here. Right, Nick. So uh, let's jump straight in. From your biography, um, it's clear that you were very much involved in the introduction of the higher rate tuition fees in 2012 with David Min uh, Willits, the minister. So look, in hindsight, was that the right decision to take? Yes, I I'm very, very clear that it was. I mean, uh, there'd been a general election in 2010 that you'll remember, and every major political party at that general election was promising big cuts in public spending, including big cuts to the business department, 
which had responsibility for universities. So look, universities were going to be on the receiving end of a really big cut unless we came up with a clever way of stopping that from happening. And so what we did was we raised tuition fees very significantly. We can't hide hide that. Um, uh, and though loaded and therefore loaded more of the costs onto uh, students once they've graduated, once they're in well-paid work, the people who benefit from higher education. Um, but you know what I'm proudest to have worked on is not that policy because clearly no one likes it when the cost of something triples. What I'm proudest of was something that policy led to. It allowed us to say to the treasury, now that higher education can wash its own face in financial terms, can we get rid of this silly rule that limits how many students each university can have? And the treasury let us do that. So now this autumn, when I'm talking to you now in 2021, there are more young people going to university from school this year than ever before. And that's only because of what we were able to do because we tripled those fees. So Nick, how do you respond to critics who say that all you've really done is to load students with debt while putting off those from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds from going to university? Although I should say that the data doesn't seem to actually show that. Well, exactly. Before uh, the fee rise happened, everybody predicted, indeed, there are even opinion polls saying that there would be a massive drop off in the number of uh, young people going on to higher education. Um, but I'm an evidence driven person and none of the data shows that that is what has happened. All the data shows there are more people going to higher education and including more people from those disadvantaged backgrounds who still go in nothing like as uh, you know as commonly as often as people from richer backgrounds but they yes. go more often than they did in the past uh, and there's space in the system uh, for them and people who go to higher education and it maybe doesn't work out for them financially or they choose to work in a low-paid profession they don't have to repay uh, all the money many of them yep. don't repay any of the money I mean, that, that's, but that's a part of the problem, isn't it? I guess if you're a critic of the system, you'll say this massive debt's been built up because um, you know, the, the normal repayment, the so-called RAB charge for those steeped in the technical, te technicalities of this. Um, is that going to be a, a problem? And we'll, we'll talk about the, the comprehensive spending review in, in a minute. But do you see any uh, kind of trouble ahead because of the, the defaults, potential default on the loan? Yes, I do. I mean, when we designed the system back in 2012, we were expecting uh, the write-off costs to be about 33 pence in the pound. So for every pound of student loan, we expected about 33p not to be repaid. That's gone up to over 50p in the pound, um, partly largely actually because of a decision Theresa May took to increase the point at which you start repaying your loan yep. to, it's now north of 27,000. And so I do think we probably need to unwind that. I think the Treasury will do that. It's not going to be a popular policy, but it's better, as I say, than uh, uh, cutting student places. The number of 18 year olds is going to grow for every one of the next 10 years. So it'd be crazy to limit people's opportunity to go to university but but nick it's really important that i i say i'm not saying everything uh, i had a hand in when i worked in government worked out well one thing that has happened negatively uh, and i urge the government to look at it again is is what's happened to part-time students and mature students 
those numbers have fallen and the system doesn't work so well for them. And I don't think any of us who worked on the design of the system would say that has worked out how we hoped. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Nick. I mean, there's, there's a big change at the top. We've got a new sort of set of well, shuffling of new ministers, if you like, new ones coming, some going. Uh, and the brief has been extended to cover post-16 education as part of this recent uh, cabinet reshuffle. So uh, what's your view of the advantages and disadvantages of broadening the focus of ministers from FE into HE and perhaps bringing it together? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, lots of people think the fact that Michelle Donnellan, the university's minister, is now also going to have responsibility for further education colleges uh, is a really good thing because it, it, it sounds like it's joined up. Suddenly, FE and HE won't be battling each other. You know, it'll all be joined yep. up. Yep. I, I completely disagree. I mean, that's the consensus. I, I completely disagree with it. And the reason I disagree with it is that we want as many top level politicians as possible uh, battling for the, the voluntary stage of education, the post 18 stage of education in Whitehall as possible. If it all lands in one minister's office, yeah. then um, you, you don't have that cross-government conversation that you need. So, so I, I actually think it's a step backwards. I yeah. hope I'm wrong. Most yes. people would disagree with me, but I think it's a step backwards. That's very interesting. Well, look, we'll, we'll just see how it unfolds, won't we, over the, over the coming months. Um, other things unfolding, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak's spending review 2021 will conclude on the 27th of October. That's alongside the autumn budget that sets out government spending priorities for the next year. So, Nick, what do you think it will hold for English universities? <laughs> well, well, even though it's only a few days away now, uh, about, you know, three, four weeks away, um, it's far too early to say, and even though we've been waiting for it for years, when I worked in government, the spending review was really decided in the last few days before it happened. That, that was the crucial moment. So it's a bit too early to say, but, but I don't think there will be a cut to tuition fees that some people have predicted, because that would push some universities to the wall and yep. into bankruptcy, and that would be terrible. I think they might find some extra money for research people Everybody understands now, now the jabs have been rolled out, how important university research is. Yeah. Uh, and I think they might find some extra money for that. And, and as we were talking about a moment ago, I do think they might change the student loan repayment terms to make them a little bit tougher. But it'll still be the case that you've got to be on a pretty decent wage before you pay any of the money back. Yeah. Last month, HEPI published one of its uh, excellent reports, uh, the latest on the financial benefits of international students to the UK economy. Without revealing the number, well, I will in a second, but do you think that the general public and perhaps more importantly, politicians are, are even aware of the massive financial contribution international students make? I mean, you and your team calculated that, that nearly £26 billion a year. Well, I think it's hard to tar all politicians and all policymakers with the same brush. I think if you're the sort of member of parliament that has a university in your constituency and you spend a lot of time thinking about these issues, then you know. You yep. know what a benefit these international students are to your area. If you're maybe a member of parliament for a rural area and maybe you're an expert, I don't know, in defence policy rather than education, you probably don't know. So what we have done is we've written repeatedly to every single member of parliament in the House of Commons with the numbers for their own constituency and to tell them that every constituency in the UK benefits from the presence of international students. And it's not just about money, by the way. Lecture halls are more vibrant, more interesting places 
when there's people around the world, uh, you know, represented there. You're, you have a much richer exchange of ideas. Nick, absolutely. Look, um, many thanks for, for, for talking to us. Now, I, I know that this is a curveball one for you, Nick. I know you're a massive uh, 1980s music fan. I'm more of a 70s person myself, I have to say. Um, now, we don't normally let uh, guests, other than the super special feature, who's uh, Mary Cunnock Cook, uh, choose a song. Uh, the song choice is, I'm afraid, my job. <laughs> but we can make the odd exception. So would you like to suggest something, Nick, from the 80s that will, be, that will set the show alight? Oh well, thank you. I, I've always I've always wanted to be a DJ even more than a than a, a policy wonk. Look, I went to Manchester University thirty one years ago because the music scene in Manchester was so vibrant. I went there because of the Smiths, because of James, because of Happy Mondays, the Stone Roses. So I would go for anything by by any of those. Um, uh, you know, Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths. Perhaps that was the sort of thing that attracted me to Manchester. Um, and I was so glad I went there. You know, I benefited from higher education the way that all your students at Northampton do today. Oh, that's great. Thank, thank you, Nick. We'll, we'll, we'll play that song. It's coming up now. And um, good luck. And I'll, I'll, I'll catch you around the circuit soon. Thanks for chatting. Thanks, Nick. Well, thanks to all my guests. It certainly looks set to be an interesting year ahead after the unexpected sabbatical most of us are forced to take. And to all our students and staff, well, good luck in the coming year. And next month, my special guest is Bob Ward, Policy and Commons Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, talking about the COP26 Climate Change Conference.